When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world it didn't exist. Open the pod bay doors, huh? I'm sorry, Dan. I'm afraid I can't do that. Go ahead, make my day. Good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are. This is another edition of Black Hole Cinema with myself, Tony Black, who is staring down the barrel of another week at work (laughs) after two blissful weeks off. And now I face the prospect of going back and when, to be honest, I could quite happily have another few weeks off watching films, reviewing films and having a life around that as well at the same time. It's gone way too quick as these things always tend to do, unfortunately, but it's been quite productive. You know, there's been, I've watched quite a few films, which I'll talk to you about in a minute. There have been some good podcast recordings made ready for your enjoyment over the next few weeks and possibly months, depending on how long that goes on for. And it's been a nice break, but it just flies by. But I'm delighted to say that I've noticed over the last seven days especially, there have been more people listening to Black Hole Cinema than ever. We're up to about 150-odd downloads and quite a few extra views as well, which is fantastic. And it may be that it's people not just listening to last week's, but it could be from the last few weeks and everything like that. But it, either way, it's wonderful. And it's it's great that people are out there listening and maybe some other people are, are picking it up and uh, getting to know it a little bit more and tuning in, which is fantastic. So please keep spreading the word. And if you are downloading and listening, please keep doing so because hopefully there's a lot of, of interesting stuff to come apart from me wittering on. Today, we've got coming up reviews of Transcendence, the very divisive new Johnny Depp film, and the curio that is Locke, starring Tom Hardy. So there's two reviews coming up of that. And I'll also be throwing in a new idea that I'm going to put out there. It's not a innovative idea by any means. I am stealing this from probably a lot of other people, but it's something that I thought I'd give a try. So I'll do that towards the end of the podcast. Equally, please stick around also for the first of our interviews with a really talented young indie filmmaker called Johan Holland, who will be uh, coming on to talk about his work towards the middle of the podcast. So 
that's very that's very exciting to have somebody come on and talk about things that aren't just a mate I'm getting on to talk about their films, their favourite films. So that should be great. So stick around for that too. So what have I watched over the last seven days then? Well, last I left you, I'd just been subjected to Godzilla and Argo, two, two very different uh, films on the spectrum. And the day after I watched two films, I started with Life of Pi by Ang Lee, which, which has been fated by the Academy and lots of other people as being a brilliantly moving, touching 3D spectacular that rivals Avatar in the stakes of mind-blowingly beautiful and heart-rending stuff. However, I didn't quite get that out of Life of Pi. I tend to think that Life of Pi, which is the story of a young boy who gets stranded in a shipwreck and befriends a Bengal tiger is not as profound as it thinks it is. It's quite m- m- philosophical and metaphysical and things like that. I'm, I'm too much of a meat and potatoes grounded guy, really, to buy into a lot, a lot of that stuff sometimes. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But in this case, it was a little bit too over-egged for me. And the, the 3D, I think, it was impressive. It was very beautifully done. And it's in, I take nothing from it. It's a very well-made film but I think it would have been viewed better at the cinema, watching in 3D on a big screen, and it loses, perhaps loses something in 2D slightly, which is ironic because I can't stand 3D normally, so to say that. And I certainly don't think it beats Avatar in terms of, of what it achieves, but it's a good film. It's a decent film, but I, didn't, I wasn't mo- moved particularly by it. I wasn't particularly blown away. I then went from that to watch Ghost Ship, <laughs> a quite trashy B-movie load of rubbish to be honest uh, starring Gabriel Byrne and some random woman who used to be on ER and it, it's just it's just rubbish basically I don't don't even bother it's not even entertaining rubbish it's just dull rubbish the day after I then watched three films I started with Phenomenon with John Travolta it's funny because Phenomenon was a film I always remember being trailered 1996 it came out and I always remember it being trailered at the time I was only a teenager and I always thought, oh, that would be interesting because it seemed to be, have like this little sci-fi alien-y touch to it. However, it doesn't really have that. It's, it's John Travolta's this small-town guy who gets struck by a light in the sky and he ends up suddenly learning lots of things. He becomes a bit superhuman in terms of he starts to develop telekinesis and things like this. But it's very much a very small-town, very small American, very cliched romantic drama with Travolta as this dim-witted guy who suddenly is able to, you know, build things and read five books a night and things like that. And it's it's okay. It's just very... Ugh, it just takes a long time to go anywhere, and then when it does go somewhere, it's not very interesting. But Travolta's pretty good, and if you're looking for something very light and unassuming, then it might do the job, but I was a little bit bored. Later on, I watched The Negotiator, which has, obviously, uh, Kevin Spacey and Sam, Samuel L. Jackson as two negotiators on the different side of the tracks. It's interesting, because it's one of those classic high-concept ideas, The Negotiator, in that it's one of those pitched, what if a hostage negotiator had to take hostages to clear his name, and another hostage negotiator had to come in to negotiate him out of the building. It's a good idea. Samuel L. Jackson is always watchable. Kevin Spacey is always watchable. And I remember watching The Negotiator years ago and thinking how great it was. Time and a rewatch has dulled that a little bit for me. It ends very well. It's got a very good ending. It builds quite well. 
it's overlong. It takes a while to get going. And Sam Jackson and Kevin Spacey do not get enough to do together. And Kevin Spacey doesn't come into it for nearly an hour. And it, it just, it's, it's a bit all over the place. It's not bad. Certainly the best film that F. Gary Gray, the director, has ever done. But that's not saying much. But it's effective. Pretty good. Not as great as I remember. Finally then, I ended this fairly plodding film day with The Devil's Advocate, which is, of course, quite a well-known film by Taylor Hackford in which Al Pacino plays the devil and Keanu Reeves is a lawyer who he tries to tempt to the dark side. And it's, it's you know, law and evil are probably two things that go together quite a lot. You know, there's the old joke about the lawyers drowning in the sea. I can't remember it fully now. But it's all, you know, the law world and the devil and evil are probably happy that bedfellows in many ways. But the problem is the devil's advocate never has nearly as much fun as it should have at any point. It takes a long time to go anywhere. It's got a really good performance by Charlize Theron, who was just starting to come up into the ranks, you know, uh, back, back in like 97, I think this was made. But Keanu Reeves is, is pretty awful, even though people keep saying to me it's his best ever performance. I, I mean, it, no, he's, he's one of his best ever performances. He's probably in The Matrix, actually, but the, he's not particularly great in this. Al Pacino's always watchable, but if only, and to be fair... Connie Nielsen, who's in this as, as one of his devilish brides, is unspeakably hot throughout the whole thing, so I could watch it just for her. But Pacino doesn't get to have nearly as much fun as he should do as the devil until the last like, 15, 20 minutes, where the film kicks up into this slightly bonkers gear, which ends... you know, it, it, If the whole film had been that much fun of the last 20 minutes, it would have been really good. Unfortunately, it's not. It's like a plodding John Grisham meets Hammer Horror for the rest of it. So it's a shame, because it could have been great. But it's worth it for the last 20 minutes, when Al Pacino goes properly off the deep end as a devil. That's not Al Pacino at all, but you know, you get, you get the picture. The next day, I was out a lot. I was with a friend, but myself and he did manage to watch a horror film at the very end of the night. And we watched one called Would You Rather? Quite a schlocky piece. Uh, very low budget, with uh, one of those concept ideas based on the game would you rather the parlor game would you rather in which jeffrey coombs is always fine jeffrey coombs is always good good value is basically playing a slightly bonkers well a very bonkers millionaire who invites people around to his house on the pretext that if they turn up for dinner he'll give them the money they need and this this woman goes there and she's she needs money for her dying brother and they basically basically just becomes torture porn very quickly they, they would you rather stab someone in the lo- in the leg or cut your own eye open, and things like that. And it just goes on for a bit. It's got a good idea, but it's got no money, it's got no script, it's got rubbish direction, and it's only got Jeffrey Coombs, who's really particularly interesting. It does have Sasha Gray, the ex-porn star, who Steven Soderbergh made famous, but even though you might like to look at her, that's about as much as you'll get. Very unremarkable, and quite poor. The next day, I had an absolute double bonus. After quite a few days of middling, meh films, I hit the jackpot. First, I watched About Schmidt, which is by Alexander Payne. And I love Alexander Payne since I watched Sideways. You know, Sideways has now actually probably rocketed up to be my top 25 films. Sideways is wonderful. And before that, he did About Schmidt, which has Jack Nicholson in it as this widower who goes on a life-affirming journey. And to say that it's Jack Nicholson's best performance, well, it might be up there. It, It is definitely up there. It's got to be. Because he's completely unlike anything Jack Nicholson has ever done. You know, Jack Nicholson's normally, hey, I'm the Joker. That kind of, you know, 
nothing like that. He's this quite sad, lonely, paunchy widower, proper old man role. And he's he's wonderful. He's so funny and touching and sweet. And the film is just he's just an absolute delight. It really is. And it's got that classic Alexander Payne, slight, you know, very very black comic look at a complete loser, but a sweet natured one. So if you haven't seen about Schmidt, do so because it's Jack Nicholson at his absolute best, and it's really really well written. Following that, I watched A Clockwork Orange, which by Stanley Kubrick, obviously one of the most famous films ever made and it's something that to my shame I'd never watch I mean it, it, to say it's a masterpiece is understating it really A Clockwork Orange is something that I'd heard about so many years it was banned for something like 25 years because nobody because it was so you know horrific my mom I remember telling me years ago she went to watch it when it first came out in 1971 when she was like 17 years old and it freaked her out no end so I somebody made a comment actually that A Clockwork Orange to people in the 70s, the way people are responding to Under the Skin today must have been the way they responded to A Clockwork Orange in 1971 because it's that kind of feeling of, what the hell have I just watched? Oh, my God. And I have to say that A Clockwork Orange is probably in my in my top 10 films. If not top 10, then certainly top 15 now. It is tremendous and incredibly clever, interesting, relevant, deeply, deeply disturbing film. And for the next day or two, I, I could not get singing, out the, singing in the rain out of my head for reasons you'll understand if you've seen the film. But it, it's, it's, just, it's just outstanding. So that's made up for everything else a bit rubbish I've watched this week. Day after, my girlfriend and I had a long day in where we just watched a bunch of films randomly on the Skybox. We, we did a thing where we would pick a genre for each other and then we would have to pick a film in that genre. So we got through four films. And we saw Bernie, which was a uh, Richard Linklater film, a very jet black comedy with Jack Black, in which he plays a, mort- a mortician in small town Texas. And he strikes up this very bizarre relationship with an old lady, played by Shirley MacLaine. And I didn't know it was a real it was a real life story, actually, until the very end. We were quite surprised to learn that. And it's a very, 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 very morbid jet black comedy. With, which is filmed a bit like a documentary, but it's actually really quite gle- clever and good. And Jack Black is fantastic as Bernie. It's very camp, slightly odd, possible con man. But it's, 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 it's a really, really good little film and something that a lot of people won't have seen. Following that, we watch Contraband, which is probably the dullest Mark Wahlberg film I think I've ever seen. Just literally do not bother watching Contraband. It is a waste of your time. It is, it is like snooze-inducing heist family drama rubbish. Don't bother. After that, we watched The Purge. Now, The Purge, something I'd wanted to watch for a while. It was this, you know, not horror film, but like home invasion thriller set around one night of the year in which any crime is legal in the United States. It's a 12-hour period where people can legally murder anyone, but then as long as they don't do anything else for the rest of the year. So crime is at an all-time low... You know, it's perfect. It's paradise, apart from that one night where everyone just goes nuts. It was a great, great idea. So it's one of those premises that is just genius, and whoever came up with it must have been really happy. The film itself, even though it's got Ethan Hawke and Lena Headey on a day off from Game of Thrones, is it's 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 all right. It's not bad. It's not as bad as some people have said. It's fairly well executed. It's quite enjoyable, perhaps because the the premise is good. It is quite enjoyable, but you don't care about the characters. It's very. It becomes very much just home invasion, 
gory rubbish after a while. And the, the there's an absolute ton of ideas behind what the purge is and the idea of the morality of it all that are really fascinating, but it doesn't really get into any of that. So it's it's a very, very hit and miss kind of film and ultimately doesn't live up to its premise, unfortunately. Finally, we watched Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, which is the last film I'm going to mention in this segment today. And Before the Devil Knows You're Dead was the last ever film by Sidney Lumet, Lumet, however you say his name. It's a near, near on a masterpiece involving this dysfunctional family, uh, it's a dysfunctional American family where a heist goes really badly wrong between two brothers and it's deconstructing the whole setup of that. And it's got a shifting time frame where it goes back in time and to before the robbery and it focuses on different characters. And it could have been, it would have been, it could have been so, so complicated and, and poorly done. But L- Lume is, is a brilliant director and he directs like, he's like not, he was like 81 when he filmed this. It was like something a 30 year old would do. And it's, it's got a tremendous performance by Philip, C- Philip Seymour Hoffman, the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, which is so, so good. And it's, it's just a re- I was recommended to it actually by my friend Adam for quite some time. And he, he was so on the money when he said it was brilliant because it, it really is a fantastic film. So the, the three I would really recommend from, from this week's film review, and the three that you really need to see are A Clockwork Orange Chiefly, which is a masterpiece, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, which is near, near to that, and About Schmidt, which is wonderful. The rest, hit and miss, you can give them a miss mainly, but those are the three you need to watch. So, okay, onward to the first review of this episode, and this is one that I was disappointed by. And I went to the cinema hoping that the bad reviews I'd heard in advance would be a lot of hyperbole and the fact that I've been looking forward to this for months would cancel them out. But unfortunately, I should listen to people more often. I went to see Transcendence. Please welcome my partner in science and in life, Dr. Will Castor. The path to building superintelligence requires us to unlock the most fundamental secrets of the universe. Imagine a machine with a full range of human emotion. Its analytical power will be greater than the collective intelligence of every person in the history of the world. Some scientists refer to this as the singularity. Professor? I call it transcendence. Transcendence should have really been great. And that's the biggest annoying thing about this film. Because everything is there on paper for Transcendence to be great. It's got some real talent behind the camera. It's got some real talent in front of the camera. It has a really, really interesting story that has a lot of different ideas that really deserve to be communicated and deserve to be talked about but the problem is that and it comes down to this very very simple fact with transcendence it is mind-numbingly boring in a way that I, I haven't felt in the cinema for quite some time in fact i think i was more bored with this than i was need for speed for different reasons you know need for speed i was bored because it was just bad and Transcendence isn't bad, although in fairness, it, it, it's not much better than Need for Speed in terms of, you know, the ultimate result. 
but it's not a bad film and it's not a badly made film either necessarily and I don't believe that but you know a film is supposed to entertain at the end of the day and Transcendence really 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 struggles with that the essential idea is is a really interesting one actually because it's about two scientists Johnny Depp and Rebecca Hall both of them married and they're both working in the field of artificial intelligence and they've created this artificial intelligence system called PIN which is the most sophisticated system on earth and they believe that through AI they'll be able to transform the world ultimately into this place where all the water is pure and all the rivers flow and there is no famine and you know all this stuff which they they tell us very early on okay and let's let let's let's face it here with this the script is not subtle okay so everything you need to know is pretty well communicated in case the people at the back aren't getting it just to be certain so yeah they they're working with Paul Bettany to bring this on however the least techno terrorists these urban techno terrorists called rift who believe that these people are going to bring on skynet basically and they're going to create a monster that they won't be able to control that pandora will come out the box and that'll be it and they go to great lengths to to stop them they blow up labs lucas haas blows his head off before killing well we think killing johnny depp shooting him now it's no spoiler to tell you that ultimately johnny depp does die in this film that happens in the first 30 minutes and it's in the trailer and let me tell you something if you have seen the trailer you have seen almost all of transcendence and that is a very very different rant that i could have but i'll save about trailers and the state of trailers today but yeah so johnny depp gets a poison bullet and he decides that he's you know he's quite happy with his wife's plan to upload his consciousness into pin so he can live on and he can live forever and the central relationship between these two you know this this love between them is the, the emotional core of the film and i admire the attempt to marry everything to that because it's no it's no spoiler to tell you that yes johnny depp gets gets uploaded he transcends his physical form and ends up as part of this ai at which point it all goes pear-shaped. And I won't tell you basically what happens beyond that. But again, it's, a lot of it is in the trailer. okay? And you can pretty much infer a lot of that stuff. So he's an AI system and this, the film gets into exploring you know, what happens to the human soul. What is consciousness? Why are we here? What's the purpose? Can you know? Is there? Can AI? Can a sophisticated living computer help the world in the future? Can it bring on technology that can that can cure disease? Can you know perform miracles? And there's this you know underlying idea that would an AI effectively become God? Would it transcend the you know? And the title itself is is almost quasi-religious. You know, will it transcend the physical body and become something greater? You know, something more than human, something that can actually perform better than humanity or will it subjugate humanity will it basically try and create something that we can't control so it's it's you know it's dealing with like a terminator idea with 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 a different kind of a, a more thoughtful a more cerebral idea and it is cerebral and it is interesting and the ideas are good and the storyline is interesting and thematically it's quite rich and there is so much about transcendence that on paper i like 
and I, w- I really, really was looking forward to. And it taps into a lot of areas that I really enjoy and I'm interested in and I'm fascinated by. And I know you can sense the big, hairy butt that I'm about to say. And here it is. But Transcendence brings all these themes, ideas, whatever, out in the least interesting way it, I think it was possible to do. The guy behind this is Wally Fister. And Wally Fister, if you know anything about movies, was the was the director of photography, cinematographer for Christopher Nolan on pretty much all of his films. Going back to, I think, Memento, all the way through, you know, the Dark Knight trilogy, Inception, and The Prestige, things like that. So, you know, he's he's been involved in some of the best Hollywood films of the last 10, 15 years. And he's got a very, very visual eye, and he's, he's, he's a fantastic cinematographer. He's one of the best. And he's helped Christopher Nolan deliver some truly wonderful films, in my opinion. But he's, he's, he's left that behind now, and he's actually moved on to become a storyteller. And, you know, I thought Transcendence would be a perfect fit for Wally Fister because it's got that kind of Christopher Nolan sensibility about it. You know, it's trying to tell a story about some very, very big arch themes of, about humanity with a very emotional centre with, with, the, with the, this married couple. But the difference is that what Fister has learned doesn't seem to be what Nolan is good at which is managing to tell these big thematic stories with a real sense of exciting narrative and genuine emotion. You know, in a lot of Nolan films, you do care about the characters, you know, and there's, he manages to do that. He manages to sync that up very well, you know, and say what you like, you know, you know, Nolan divides a lot of people, but you know, I'm firmly in his camp and I think I always will be because, you know, I'm, I'm, if not moved by his pictures, then I'm frequently, you know, arrested by them. Transcendence, I struggle to keep my eyes open at places because it is so leaden and it is so languid and it is so flat. And that is probably the best description of the whole thing, flat. It's it, it, on one level. It never, it never transcends, ironically. The performances are flat. The only, the, I suppose the, the person who does the best is Rebecca Hall with what she's got, although she's got a fairly flat character and a stupid character as well. But it's Paul Bettany, really, who, who, who is the best thing about this film because he's actually got a, the only character, I think, who's got a working brain. And he does what he can with a, with a role that's, that's a very undefined. And, and that's another thing. The characters, I mean, Johnny Depp looks bored out of his mind. You know, it's one thing for him to be delivering very flatly and, and very, very robotically when he's in a machine. But then what's, what's his excuse before he got in that machine? I don't know what that... He didn't have one, but he was. He was flat. You know, and as I said in my written review, I'm starting to wonder if Johnny Depp can act when he's not playing Jack Sparrow, Jack Sparrow, or, you know, the Mad Hatter, or doing some eccentric Tim Burton shtick. I'm starting to worry now that he's actually lost his ability to act and downplay because he's off his game. And in, in, in this, it's got a good cast, you know, Morgan Freeman's in it, Cillian Murphy's in it, Kate Mara, and these are all good actors who are really given nothing roles in a script that is very, very, very underdeveloped. You know, it's, it's a first-time script by a guy called Jack Paglin from The Blacklist, which I respect hugely. And, I, and I, it's really nice to know that a first-time script has got this far into a major Hollywood blockbuster. But, and I don't, I don't know whether it was Paglin's original script that has been butchered by people along the way, but it, it, it's not ended up very good. And it's, it's not terrible. There are, there are worse out there. But it's, and, it, and I think the, del- the delivery and the direction has a lot to answer for here. Because Fister has cocked it up. And it, I, it, I really hate the fact I'm saying that because I genuinely believe he's a talented man and he's a 
he's, he's got a good future ahead of him. I really do. And I think he's, he's potentially a really great director, in theory. But what he hasn't done here is marry up all the stylistic elements to any kind of genuinely interesting characters or forward momentum. You know, because the, the plot that he has takes ages going nowhere. You know, it's just stuff happening. And it's got a really, really bad use of in-media res as well. The whole idea of prefiguring the end with a little tag scene at the beginning that, that bookends the whole thing. And that completely saps any tension out of the whole thing because from the off, A, you know that one, the, the one character who does, you know, definitely make it through to the end and you know the ultimate result of everything that happens. And it's just, I genuinely was thinking, well, what, why did you do that? You know, because... The, the emotional story isn't enough to make this interesting. You know, if, if you're going to pull that trick and you're going to let the audience know effectively how it ends, because there's no twist, there's no tag at the end, there's no sudden surprise and there's no continue. It, it literally is the same scene pretty much at the beginning and at the end. So, you know, there's no, there's no twist there. There's no extra reason with it. To do that, you've got to have, you've got to be drawn in. You've got to have the characters that draw you in. You've got to have the exciting narrative. You've got to have, but there's not, it's not there. It's not there. And all the, all the, all the, you know, CGI and, and all the, the conceptual ideas, you can throw out, you can have as many as you like of them. But if the drama isn't working and you're not engaged, and if you're the guy behind me in the cinema who was snoring, Honestly, he was having a better time than I was. That's when you know you, you haven't got this right. And it, I hate to say it, but transcendence, and I really feel bad using this pun, but it sums it up probably the best way I can think of. Transcendence is ham-fisted. Where are you going? Everywhere. Hey, welcome back, guys. Uh, I've now got a very uh, special guest with me for this section of the podcast. I'm delighted to introduce a young up-and-coming independent filmmaker who has agreed to come on and talk about his work and what, he's, what he believes about independent filmmaking and talk to us a little bit about his favourite film. So, um, welcome, Johan Holland. Hi, how you doing? All right, thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks for being on the show. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, and you're the, uh, I would say, founder of Cumulo Pictures. Is that the best description of you? Uh, yes, I think it's probably the, the best description. Um, I like to write and direct, uh, but Cumulo Pictures is kind of the, the umbrella in which I, under which I do it all under. So um, that's, my, uh, that's my project, my baby. Awesome. Yeah. And your your baby came to my knowledge through uh, your YouTube series Coloured Snow, uh, mm -hmm. which is I think your biggest project to date, isn't it, so far? It is, yes. Definitely the the biggest by far. You might argue too big. <laughs> <laughs> but um I uh, I like to aim uh, have high aims and uh, aim high. And um Quite it, was, right, it was a big project. It's a fourteen part series. Um so altogether it comes to just under 60 minutes. So, you know, it's essentially a small feature, short yeah. feature. Um, and it was a huge, huge project undertaking. And it actually went through a few different incarnations. 
but um, I was very pleased with the way it eventually came out. It came out great. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what it is, essentially? What the? Yeah, well, the story follows a, uh, a widowed man, and essentially um, he refuses to believe that his wife has died. Hmm. Um, he's got his friends around him, you know, telling him to just accept it, to, to not necessarily move on, because it's all very raw for him still, but he to accept that it's actually happened, but he refuses to do so. Um, and as we go through the story, we see how he starts to see visions of mm. his, his deceased wife. And uh, we as the audience, we don't know what she, what or who she is. Is, is, she, mm. actually, is she actually her, or is he seeing things? Mm. Um, we don't know. And uh, we, she starts to give him advice. Whether it's good advice or bad advice, we don't know, but that's what we discover through the story. And um, we go on a journey with him through a journey of his discovery and through his grief. And it's a very interesting uh, production because it's it has quite a lot of visuals and themes to it, I think, that aren't necessarily... Like you said, you know, you, we don't quite know what her her plan is or what her game is or what she's what she's trying to communicate. But the way it's filmed and the way it's written... Is very much seems very much open to interpretation. Quite a lot of it, so it's not a very straight, it's not straightforward, in that sense. Yeah, um, yeah. Basically, like like when I'm writing it, I have a very sure idea of this means that, that means that, that mm. means that. So I'm trying to give the audience uh, stepping stones from which to come to the to the to the conclusion of trying to figure out what's going on. Mm. Um, but then again, it's also it is as you say, it's very open to interpretation. And um, actually, in writing it, how how it ended, I felt was very kind of concrete, mm. and that's definitely the answer. But having gotten people's reactions from from watching it, they feel that the ending is actually very uh, ambiguous, mm. and it's very open to interpretation. Yeah, it could mean one thing or another based on what you believe. Well, that, and that's really good because even though you've got your idea of of what it is, and I was given you're the writer, you know, and I understand for being a writer myself that. You know, you you often write something and you have your own, you know, idea of what it is. But then it's great when something's layered enough, I think, to be able to be watched by someone else and they pick something from it that maybe you didn't even see or you weren't consciously aware of when you made it. And I think to yeah. be able to produce something like that must be it must be a great feeling. It, it really is actually because like when you when you're writing something, you kind of feel like, oh, I'm writing something. I want to convey this. I want the audience to feel that. Mm. But actually, when you end up writing something that makes people feel or think things that you didn't even consider, that, that's kind of great because the story becomes kind of a life of its own and it's mm. its, its own being, mm. um, which makes the whole thing a lot more interesting and a lot more rewarding, actually. Mm. So what, are your, what were your influences when you were writing uh, Coloured Snow then and, and producing it? Did you have any specific influences in mind? Any, any films, any TV shows or any books or anything like that? Um, ooh, that's a tough one. Mm. Um, it was one of the first kind of major things that I wrote. I'd written a couple of uh, short films before, but I wanted to tackle kind of a bigger story. Mm. Um, and something that always has inspired me is kind of uh, geographical kind of landscapes. Mm. I actually did a geography degree um, at university. And what initially got me thinking was, um, you know, two figures, um, you know, kind of in ball dress in amongst a huge huge snowy empty white canvas of a you know landscape and that's really what inspired me to, to to begin the story and i thought you know what a great contrast it is to have 
someone in a ball dress, but in the middle of a mm. you know, empty, snowy landscape. And it kind of grew from there. Um, and then having the two different colored dresses and then what do they mean? Um, in terms of like creative influences, I mean, I've always been a big fan of um, creating a sense of not knowing what's real. So mm. questioning of reality. Mm. Um, so Nolan is actually, was actually mm. a, a good a, an influence. I'm trying to think of the name of the film. Um, Inception? One of Nolan's... No, one of his early ones. One of his earlier ones with Robin Williams in... Insomnia. Insomnia, yeah. yes. Yeah. I love that film. That's a very That's a, good film. It's a great film, yeah. You can see, to an extent, I think some of the some of the comparison there really with coloured snow in, in some terms of, of what you were trying to achieve, certainly when you, you, you were looking at landscapes and things like that, that very sort of, it, it, it struck me at times that it was kind of in a, in a visual way, it had a certain almost like remoteness to it, coloured snow and a certain coldness. Yet you had this emotion, this strong emotion at the very center of it with the, with the relationship between uh, the man and his, and his wife and his search for this, for this answer. And it seemed like you were tr- you were juxtaposing those significantly, and it, and you felt that when you were watching it, you felt that raw that rawness to it. I think. Yeah, I think, I think what what I tr- did try to achieve, certainly with the shots and with the aesthetic, was to get a feeling of either distance mm. or of very closeness. Mm. So so in terms of the cinematography of of it. I always wanted to make sure shots were either very close, mm. and as you've probably seen it, like the close shots are very yeah, close. Yeah, very, yeah. Um, or I like to come very far away, so it's a mm. nice wide shot. Mm. Um, so basically you're getting a nice kind of empty overview or a very detailed, uh, intense view. Mm. Um, so you are creating that contrast, so you're, you're immediately always creating interest. Mm. Mm. And that, that, does come, that does come across, I think. As as does as I say as does the geography of of the piece because without spoiling too much you take the character to a very specific geographical place don't you as as the story goes mm-hmm. on and you touch on yeah. some really interesting scientific ideas as well don't you as as the, as the mm-hmm. story goes on what was the what was the basis there in terms of what you were trying to uh, get across because it reminded me of certain shows and, and films that have introduced some really complex theories into quite emotional stories i mean one of the things that really struck reminded me of was certain parts of lost actually where they do bring in these i don't know if you're a fan of lost but they bring in these big yeah these big ideas i'm a big fan of lost yeah well it makes completely makes sense as am i and i can see it in this and you know you bring in this big idea and you weave it into the into the whole um emotion of it was that was that a really intentional thing you wanted to do yeah i mean like I've always had a great interest in science. Like um, I did science at uni. Mm. Um, I've always had a big interest in physics and things like that. Mm. And it's something I always like to try and infuse into my stories. Obviously, you want you know want fantastic characters, fantastic plots, all that kind of stuff. But I want to, I, I, I almost like to, in some way, educate my audience and bring in a bit of science. In, mm. in a way, bring in a bit of reality into mm. a story. Mm. So it's not all just fluff. There's 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 actually some backbone. There's some real scaffolding there to yeah. it. Of course, like the the science that's in coloured snow is is highly theoretical. Mm. Um, 
it, there, there's not any like uh, solid proof for it. It's theoretical physics, mm. which is in coloured snow. Mm. I could go in and to explain it, but I don't know if I want to spoil it. Yeah, uh, I, I wouldn't. Haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah. it could be something that people go and look up, couldn't it? Really, and try and find out more yeah. about. I did. I certainly did after I watched it because I was like, hmm, that's you know, that's really interesting. So, because hopefully people will listen to this and go off and dig the the show out. So yeah. Um, yeah, hopefully. But yeah, but it's it's very interesting though, and it adds that certain layer of depth, I think, to everything with it. So, in terms of actually producing it, how easy was it to make? Uh, ultimately, you know, with shooting it and and right, how long did it take you to write it first off? Um, well, it's it's very tricky to quantify actually because it went through several incarnations. Mm. Um, essentially, I I finished writing the first draft at the beginning, uh, right at the beginning of 2012. Right. Okay. <clears throat> so you know, about just under two years before it was finally complete. Mm. Basically, it went through an initial uh, carnation where I had my t- you know my two leads, and we we were filming for you know something like 15 months. Wow! And, really. Um, yeah, because wow. basically they were they were both actors that were on uh, Broadway, awesome. uh, in the West End. Sorry, not mm. Broadway. That's still that's still <laughs> good. <laughs> still really in the good. West End, you know, big like big productions in the West End. So there were big gaps mm. between filming. Um, so it was very difficult, and eventually um, the two of them pulled out before we finished filming, mm. which was highly frustrating for me because we put in. Me and you know the rest of the crew had put in a lot of work over those you know fifteen to eighteen mm. months, something like that. Yeah. Um, so it was a it was a big body blow to the production, and it felt like you know it wasn't going to get done. Mm. But um, but I picked myself up and uh, recast recast the roles. Found fantastic fantastic actor in uh, in Matthew, mm. um, and he really just took the role and, and ran with it. And mm. Did fantastically, and he's, he's such a he's such a pleasure to work with as well. But the what was what was most impressive though is when um, we started filming. So the second incarnation, after we got over that first hurdle, we started filming uh, the end of August in uh, 2013, and we had the screening for the film in mid-November. Wow! So we went from first day of shooting to screening in 11 weeks. That's that's a hell of a turnaround. <laughs> that really <laughs> yeah. is. It was a lot of work. It was a yeah. lot of work, but it was um, very much worth it. In terms of the script, yeah, so the first draft was right at that beginning, mm. and then it went through a couple of extra drafts, and then the script kind of settled there for the previous incarnation. Um, when it came to the second one, I thought, this is a good opportunity to make it better than it was, because mm. obviously once you've started filming something once, you start noticing little bits and pieces, mm. how you can make it better, how you can improve, how you can build upon that. Mm. And so I thought, I'm going to improve the script. So I did, um, with a couple of help of uh, some of my friends, and um, some people I've worked with, um, they helped me improve the script mm. and uh, brought it up to a high standard and really, really brought it up to a new level. So that was, um, yeah, so that was mid, you know, mid-2013. Um, yeah, but yeah, very difficult to quantify actually how long it took to do the script. Yeah. But it, um, quite, a, quite a long time. I mean, because I'd split it into episodes, I think it made it, um, it, made it easier to edit because it was mm. in bite-sized chunks mm. as opposed to it being a full feature. Mm. Did you find that the scripting was quite fluid in terms of when you had the new actors involved and the and with with the with the with the cast itself you know were they contributing or was it very much a very specific vision you wanted to communicate 
Um, I do have a very specific uh, vision that I want to communicate, um, which you might expect from someone being a, a writer-director. Hmm. But it's not to say that I'm, you know, going to pounce on anyone who suggests yeah. any kind of difference in the script. Like, um, I have a strong vision in my head of what I want, and I have reasons for that. So I'm, I'm open to suggestions, as, you know, sometimes Matthew or Carrie-Anne did. Hmm. They'd say, should I, should I be saying this line this way or this way or that way? And, you know, sometimes I'd be like, yeah, you know, you're right. That line should be said that way, not mm. that way. So, you know, you've got to be open to change because as much as you can go over and over and over a script, mm. sometimes it's you can never really know until you're right in that moment. Mm. Obviously, you, you want to eliminate those as much as you can because you want you want the filming to be uh, fluid and, and quick mm. and get things done as quickly as you can. But you, you do need to be open to that. But generally speaking, I do have a strong vision of, of what I want to do. Mm. Um, but specifically in terms of like actor performance. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, I'm very open to hear what they they have to say because ultimately they're in that position of that yeah. character. They, they can tell me if that feels real, if that feels natural. Yeah. How, how easy did you find actually the filming process? As in... Was it easy to find locations to shoot? Was it obviously you did it in a really quick turnaround, but was it uh, was it very fraught with difficulty? Even though in that short space of time, uh, definitely yes. Locations mm. are a tricky a tricky beast, mm. um, but <laughs> um, but the, if you get them right, they can make the difference. They can really make the difference between mm. an average film and a very good film. Mm. I think, especially as an indie filmmaker. I think the um, location is absolutely key mm. because you know if you have just a you know someone someone's little bedroom somewhere and you're shooting in there, mm. it, it's going to look you know badly lit. It's going to look drab. It's not mm. got a it's not got a true scale to it. Mm. You know, but if you if you try and get a big proper location, it's just going to lift the film up. It's going to make it seem more real. It's going to put it on a bigger stage. It really makes a difference. 
Um, but in terms of difficulty, yeah, it was very difficult. What, a lot of the filming we did for Coloured Snow was actually done in uh, Royal Holloway University, which is the university I went to. Mm. Um, and that's something that I would give advice to, to new filmmakers looking for locations. Use your contacts. Yeah. Use your previous you know, acquaintances. Because cause I had a link to Holloway, uh, Royal Holloway, um, they were very happy to allow me to film, which I was very grateful for. Mm. And, and they got these fantastic locations where I was able to uh, fake a hospital and a scientific institute. And um, and I got all that for free as well because I had that previous link to them. And it worked as well. I mean, you you know, it didn't feel like you were putting a, a sign on, on a door in, in a... <laughs> in a random house and trying to pass it off as, you know, it, it worked very well. You know, you really did get the sense that you were going actually filming in a, in that location, which is, which is great. Yeah. Well, I'm glad about that because that's pretty much what it was. Yeah. <laughs> we were just sticking, sticking signs up. Um, but yeah, yeah. The, yeah. It's, so like the signs actually, it's funny you mentioned the signs. The signs are something I really put a lot of time into. It may be something you didn't even notice. Mm. Uh, but it's one of the little Easter eggs I like to put in, in my writing. So mm. if anyone ever has a look through it, you can see one of the posters on the wall is particularly um, particularly poignant. Mm. I, I don't know if I did spot that, actually. So you, I'll be going back and looking. <laughs> um, I think you're right about location being really important and calling in favours and things like that. So um, that makes a lot of sense. Did you find it easy to actually shoot on on the equipment you had? I mean, what, what were you using specifically to shoot coloured snow? My equipment was actually quite basic, mm. which you may be able to see. The, the footage is not the best um, in coloured snow. I think it's a good standard. Mm. It's not necessarily the best, but it was... Um, uh, it's a Nikon. It's a Nikon DSLR. Mm. A D3100. Yeah. So it's a little... It's, it's getting a little bit old now, that one. But um, it's a solid camera, I think. Mm. Lighting lighting we used was just some standard kind of redheads which uh, which might i add were a complete nightmare <laughs> um, if you, yeah so if, if you're going to use lighting make sure you get i would say having done it myself mm. having bought lights for maybe a lower price mm. i would say make a good investment in lights for yeah. out there because the lights were a constant source of uh, issues mm. for me um constantly breaking uh, bulbs exploding etc <laughs> But with the Nikon, though, I mean, that's, um, from what I know, it's a fairly well-known, decent camera to shoot on and with, without necessarily being massively overpriced either. So even though it's, yeah. you know, these the DSLR cameras seem to be a go-to now, don't they, for indie filmmakers? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can see why, because they are, as you say, they're very affordable as cameras mm. go. And the real benefit, of course, you get with DSLRs is the depth of field. Yeah. So you've got a really great depth of field on that, so you can get a real good feel for distance, which mm. is what gets you close to that kind of cinematic feel. Mm. You know, whereas if you're doing it with a camcorder or something yeah. like that, it's it's going to feel flat. Mm. You're not going to get that that feeling of distance. Well, I, I tested out myself um, last summer because I'd, I'd I'd read an article about a guy who managed to film a short film that he took to a a, a festival on a, on his mobile phone on his on his iPhone. And I oh, thought yeah, yeah. you may know you may know about this. And I, I thought um, I thought okay, let's let's try this. So I got a few friends round, and I'd written a short script, which I'd like to do properly uh, eventually. And I got a few friends round, and I did it in my in my flat, and it was it came out okay, but there's definitely something that you just can't you can't. There are certain elements you can't do on just that basic 
a recording equipment, you know, and it, it was it was telling. It was impressive that that person managed to do that with that short film. But I think there's there's no substitute for an actual DSLR or something like that to make that yeah. difference, like you say. And you can tell that in Coloured Snow, you know, you can't you do get that sense of a cinematic, you know, feeling. You really do it, you know, at times. It's certain the way it's shot and the way it's set up, um, and that does make the difference, I think. Yeah, no, thank you for saying that. I mean, like, I think I might might have heard that story you're talking about. Mm. Like, there, I think there is um, there are special ways and special software you can get to make things like, say, an iPhone film to have that certain, like a certain feeling of depth of field about mm. it. Mm. There are ways of doing it, I think. But like, but like you say, I think to to truly get it to look right, you do need to go for the better cameras. Yeah. And of course, you could say if you're not going to have a DSLR, you could go to a proper camera, like you know, a red camera. Mm. Something like that, where it's going to get even better. Yeah. Um, but I think if you're indie filmmakers, a, a really good DSLR camera is, is going to do you because it's you know you've got pretty much everything you want there. Yeah. Um, in a camera, I think uh, having Nikon though myself, I think that's quite unusual. Most indie filmmakers tend to gravitate towards Canon, um, but I've I've always had a Nikon DSLR, so I stuck with that. There's also Panasonic, isn't there? They do uh, DSLRs. I don't know how. I've never actually used one. I, I couldn't say. Yeah, I'd, me, me neither. But it's uh, there's a few out there, isn't there? There's a few uh, companies that do them. Well, so. uh, yeah, well, everyone's trying it now. Yeah, aren't they? <laughs> trying to get in on the act. Yeah. <laughs> so, in terms of the actual crew around you, was that made up of people you hired, or was that made up of people you knew, friends, that kind of thing? Or did you use? There's a, there's a website, isn't there, called Is it Shooting People, um, where you can yes. you can get people, you can hire people for projects. Did you use anything like that, or? I I didn't actually. And then there are ones like Shooting People mm. or Mandy.com mm. or Ideas Tap is a good one as well for finding people mm. sometimes. Um, but actually, because I'd already had kind of established certain links from filming before, I kind of used what I had. And I didn't, ever, I didn't really ever hire people because I wanted to save money. I wanted to utilize mm. my contacts. So a lot of the times it was actually just friends helping me out. Mm. Say if it was something relatively low skilled, I could get them to do. They would just help me out, do you know, holding a mic or something like that. Making the tea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But um, but also I had certain acquaintances who I'd met at you know certain talks or you know courses, things like that. Mm. Who I knew were also up and coming. Um, who wanted to get a bit more uh, experience making films, so I got them to help out as well. Mm. Uh, like one guy, Tristan, he helped on out on the sound, and mm. he's kind of wanting to get into film and things um, and acting as well. And mm. so he came out on the on the South Downs day, which is where we filmed the uh, the ending, Talent Snow. Yeah, he did the sound that day. So it's kind of a combination of people just um, helping out, as well as. Um, as well as a couple of people looking like myself, you know, to get into film properly and wanting some experience in, in doing that. Also, some of the uh, some of the cast as well were particularly um, helpful in, in helping out sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> some if something needed carrying or something. Yeah. Um, which is why it's always helpful to have very um, pleasant cast and crew. You know, people you you're mm. going to enjoy working with. Yeah. Well, the cast are mucking in now, but uh, once they're once they're running there. 10 million on their major film sets when they've hit the big time they won't be carrying then <laughs> that'll be no, yeah. maybe not, maybe not. you'll be able to tell the story of how i remember when they worked for nothing and they carried my suitcase up that hill <laughs> and, and now exactly, look at them yeah. yeah 
But that you've led me into my next question, actually, which is what 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 are your ambitions really for? Well, not just for Coloured Snow, but for your for your filmmaking journey, really, and Cumulo Pictures, are, and and that. What what is what exactly is your is your ambition ultimately? Well, my ambitions actually are always are always kind of changing mm. and growing, which is kind of what I want for Cumulo Pictures. I want it to be I want it to be something diverse. So I want to build Cumulo Pictures into uh, a great production house. Mm. And I actually want to build it into a production and animation house. Oh, fantastic. So I'm currently working um, on an animation script, which I'm developing, which I'm hoping to start making some strides towards across the summer this year and onwards. Um, And it's something um, I really want to build a kind of a company where you have diversity and, you know, uh, multifaceted skills are, you know, encouraged. Mm. So people... You know, people can have two different skills and they can use that across the organization. Hmm. I also want to build a company where good values are, are you know, appreciated and are taken into account. Hmm. I think too often um, in film, good values and even just good manners are hmm. forgotten at the door when hmm. deadlines start approaching and, um, and things need to get done. Hmm. Um, and I know a lot of industries are guilty of that. I'm not saying this is something only the film industry does, but mm. it's certainly something that is prevalent in the film industry. Um, and I think that a lot of the time it's unnecessary. And so I would always want to instill a good, a good valuing of good values, basically. Mm. And that's something I really want to build. And it's something something I'd like to spread across the film industry as well. Mm. That's a fantastic ambition, really. In order to you know make your make your company stand out, really, and and be something fresh. What then? You're saying you've got the animation script in progress. What, uh, what, what, what else are you looking at potentially to do next? Specifically, is there anything? Is there anything specific you can talk about? Or yeah, well, it's it's, it's a feature. It's a mm. feature idea. Um, but we're probably going to be doing it as a short first to find mm. our feet. Mm. Um, because obviously this is a new venture for myself. I'm not that experienced in animation, but it's somewhere I really, somewhere I've always been, uh, something I've always been interested in, which mm. you're going to find out with my favourite film. <laughs> um, Exciting, yeah. And so, uh, so yeah, somewhere I've always wanted to get into, and I've, this, the actual idea that I've had for this feature I, is actually the idea that got me into writing in the first place. Mm. I had this idea, and I thought, wow, that's a great story, that's a great idea, I must write this. But it was one of those ideas that I never really wrote down properly. Mm. And I ended up moving on to other ideas, and it just stayed in my head. And I'm finally getting it down onto paper. Basically, it's a, it's a story of, uh, of a girl becoming lost in the world of the clouds. Okay. So there's um, up in the clouds, there's, this, there's these tribes of people, and they're there to kind of, well, they just inhabit it, and they keep the, the system in order. And there's all kinds of creatures there as well that inhabit this sky world that we underground are unaware of but she finds herself lost up there and she doesn't belong there and we follow her journey um in, in this world basically i won't say any more than that mm. but yeah it's all in it's, in it's in development at the moment we actually have a teaser a kind of a teaser trailer up um on our vimeo page because we were looking for some funding mm. for the film um, if anyone's interested you can have a look at that that's available to look at and there's some kind of concept drawings on there how it might look and how it might sound as well are you going to get a kickstarter or anything involved there with this potentially is there any potentially um we haven't fully ironed out the funding strategy yet mm. but that's uh, that is an option on the table yeah 
Excellent. It does sound like a really good idea for an animated, from what you've told us. It sounds like a perfect starting point for something animated and to look quite beautiful and really capture the imagination, which is, you know, what you're going to want to do. So that's that's really good. Just in terms of independent filmmaking, though, and now you've got experience having done this and having gone out and shot and, and, and written, do you feel that the... The, the age of the indie really is here with the technology we've got now and with being able... I mean, you, you've put this on YouTube um, for everyone to see uh, and, you you know, you're building a reputation from it. Do you really feel it's something that anyone can do now, potentially? Or is it something that you need to have a certain element of talent for or you need to have a certain knowledge about? Or do you think pretty much anyone can have a go? I think you do need to have a certain temperament mm. and a certain desire and mm. a certain amount of knowledge. Mm. But... The great thing about the internet is that it's a great freer um, of information. Mm. So anyone who doesn't know anything, no, no technical skills or qualifications, can go there and learn. And there's all kinds of resources, you know, both officially by, you know, places like Ideas Tap or you know BFI, places like that. Mm. And they're going to give out all kinds of great references. Well, there's people on YouTube, you know, who just do lovely YouTube guides. And I know I've used them to help me out sometimes when I've had a particular issue I needed to to try and sort mm. and there's just so many resources that it really is a great age for the indie because it still does take a lot of time a lot of effort and sometimes a lot of money mm. um, for what is for a single person but it, it, it's, it's attainable which it didn't used to be mm. and it is, it is within reach for people to do if they're willing to put in that effort and to, to really try the, 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 you know, it's there for people to take I thought you were going to say the sky's the limit then, which would nicely have tied in both to Cumulo <laughs> and <laughs> your animated idea. But you left me to make the bad pun, which is, which is probably quite fitting, really, because uh, <laughs> I live off bad puns usually. Let's finish up then by uh, talking about, this is something I've asked you to have a think about and uh, to do as I'm getting other people I know to chip in and do, to talk about your favourite film. And... Mm. Do you want to tell us then what you've chosen and why you've chosen this film? Okay, it was it was a difficult decision because mm. I wasn't sure whether to go for an animated or or, or, um, or live action film. Mm. Um, I one the one film I did think I might choose, but I didn't, was um, A Beautiful Mind. Ah, okay. Um, it's a good that's film. a film I've always loved, and there's, as you might understand, there's a lot of similarities between it and Coloured Snow, mm. and the idea of what's real and what's not real, mm. that kind of thing in reality. But I thought, I thought, no, like I do love that film, but what film is truly kind of, I find it's just a truly amazing film is uh, Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind. And I absolutely love that film, and it's a, it was a Studio Ghibli film. Hayao Miyazaki's first animated feature. Hayao Miyazaki uh, has quite a reputation, doesn't he, in the animated field? Hayao Miyazaki, I believe, did My Neighbor Totoro. Is that right? Yes, and and, right. and which is widely regarded as one of the best animated films ever made. Um, mm. So Studio Ghibli do have a real cred in terms of animation that goes back beyond things like Pixar and all the ones that people usually you know talk about these days. Mm. Um, yeah. So what is it about what is it about Norska in the Valley of the Wind then that really that really gets to you and really makes it you know strike a chord? It's got a certain rawness about it, which I think is partly because for one it's Japanese and two mm. it's from the eighties. I think it was nineteen eighty four mm. it was made. 
So if you can for, if you can forgive the uh, the soundtrack a little bit because at times <laughs> it's a little bit electronic eighties, <laughs> but it is actually mostly it is a very good soundtrack. It's just the odd um, dodgy um, electric organ comes in, but no, it's it's a very kind of it's a very kind of raw, isolating feel, and it kind of ties in my like and my love of um, sci-fi, mm. and it does sci-fi in just the right way as well. It's got in the in the sense that it's got strong sci-fi plot there, but it's lying under the surface. It's not the key feature of the story. Um, I'll, I'll take you through a quick go of the story if, mm. if anyone doesn't know the film. Basically, it's set in this kind of um, far uh, far far dystopian future where humanity has poisoned and essentially destroyed uh, the earth and humans have just been left in kind of small uh, village pockets or like tribe-like village pockets and um, basically all the poisonous materials that man has created over time is amassed in the uh, in the poisonous jungle and animals have evolved to live within this poisonous jungle um, and they kind of inhabit and protect this jungle but humans can't go in it. If they do, they'll die. Mm. Um, and then the story follows the main character, who's uh, who is Nausicaa, and she's kind of like a princess of, of the, the little kingdom that we we see. And we follow her journey as we discover more about why why all these animals are protecting this jungle and how it all happened. And it's just very interesting. It's just a great escape. Like they even um. Uh, what at the end they have kind of a um, a shipwreck on a beach, mm. and you think oh it's a ship, and you think oh yeah it's just a shipwreck you know it's very nice very nice shipwreck on a beach but mm. actually you discover that it was actually a um, a kind of like a futuristic kind of space rocket oh, okay that has been left on you know it's just on the beach and now it's crumbling away and then they use that to kind of inhabit for a little bit and it's just a it's just a really kind of it's, it feels very lost, very isolating, very desolate, but at the same time, it's so warm because Nausicaa is such a warm, lovely character. Um, and she's just this kind of this kind of beacon of good throughout the story and the kind of the saviour of the story. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's, just, it's, it's very nice. I don't know if I've done it justice talking about it, but... Uh, <laughs> you would... described it quite well, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, I would uh, say to anyone who's interested in that kind of thing to, to give it a watch, it's very good. It sounds like there's a... It resonates with you in terms of certain themes that you're interested in. Um, certainly based on Coloured Snow, so, you know, from having seen that, in terms of people going on journeys to, you know, find things out, find things about themselves, and and the whole desolate nature of you know of, of everything, the landscapes. I mean, there's a it seems like there's a big environmental um, message to this film as well, and that you know again it seems like the kind of kind of stories that you're drawn to. And so it sounds like it would strike a chord with you, really. Yeah, I mean, definitely environmental environmentalism in stories is something that really interests me. Mm. And um, it's something that Hayao Miyazaki does in all his films. He always mm. brings in some idea of, you know, environmentalism or man-destroying nature mm. in that sense. And I think it's a, it's a nice, it's a, it's a great argument because, you know, it is something that we do need to address as a race. Mm. Mm. And I think it's nice to put that across in film to really you know drill it home to people that it is an issue mm. and, as, as, and as well as you're talking about journeys as well uh, i really like the idea of going on a you know of course an emotional journey which is what a film is all about but going on a physical journey i think it's kind of important as well mm. i think it can be obviously there are films that do it great as well where a character stays within their physical constraints but still goes within goes on a great emotional 
journey. Mm. Um, but I, I do like to have that sense of physical journey and adventure to a story. It just kind of opens the scape, I think, a bit, makes it a wider, wider breadth. Mm. And adds, adds a little more to it. So mm. what then, finally, what, what would be the ultimate um, piece of advice? If someone, if you're recommending Norska in the Valley of the Wind, what's mm. the one piece of advice you give people to want to, to go ahead and watch it? Anyone, if, if they're an environmentalist, yeah. I would definitely give them the environmental argument because obviously Hayao Miyazaki always loves the environmental argument, but this yeah. film is completely centered around the environmental ideal. Mm. or you know what the horrible dystopian future may hold for the human race that mm. kind of thing mm. so that would definitely persuade them to to watch it uh, if you if you're just a normal lay watcher i would say Norsica as a character goes through an incredible journey emotionally and she's a, a very you know kind caring and very intelligent character um and we see kind of snippets kind of dreamy snippets of her path Mm. which uh, of a past rather of a past which are really fascinating mm. and we don't actually truly understand what those snippets back to her past actually mean mm. but they're, they're a kind of a vision of a kind of a happier you know nicer time which you know kind of harks harks to the story of the environmental side of things being so bad and harking back to a prettier time when things were better like now mm. and so i'd say that her as a character is a great reason to watch it because mm. she's such a driven active character that goes through such a journey and it's also great to see a film where you've got a not only a female lead but a a great female lead Mm. you know she's a very 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 interesting character there's a lot of depth there fantastic okay that's that's i'm definitely gonna hunt this out i've wanted to watch some um some of these films in studio ghibli for a while so i'm definitely gonna Mm. bump this to the top of the list now so that's fantastic thank you so much Joan, for coming on and, and being interviewed thank you it's no problem at all thank you for asking me absolute pleasure it's been fantastic guys please look up cumulo pictures uh, they're on youtube and on uh, twitter facebook i believe uh, vimeo anywhere else that you're on that, that they can be sent to anyone listening to this we're on youtube uh, vimeo twitter facebook um, the works pretty much yeah and we've got all the links on the website cumulopictures.com fantastic go and give Coloured Snow especially a watch because it is a really fascinating film that, that's been made with a lot of care and affection I was really impressed and I think Owen's done a fantastic job really and I just hope that one day we'll see Cumulo rise and uh, you heard about them here first <laughs> <laughs> So thanks ever so much, Joan. No problem at all. Thank you. Time now for the next review of this week. And thankfully, it's much better than Transcendence. I went to see Locke. The first thing to say about Locke is that I've got a little bit of homegrown pride about this film. 
simply because it was made by a guy called Stephen Knight, who is a son of my hometown of Birmingham in the UK. And it's partly set in Birmingham, this film. And uh, anyone who lives in the UK will know that Birmingham is a massively underrepresented city in terms of drama. It's never on British television. It's certainly never, ever in the movies. Mainly because I think Birmingham has, has a reputation as being quite ugly. And that's not very fair in that, you know, it's a city that's had a lot done to it over the last 10, 15 years and is continuing to be transformed. And it's it gets a bit of a bad rep. And I think also because the, the accent, um, I mean, you can't tell from my charming dulcet tones, but the Birmingham accent isn't the nicest one, to be honest. Most people talk like this. So it doesn't really get very much representation. But Stephen Knight has uh, written a film here where Birmingham does feature, and the premiere of Locke was at my local Cineworld last Wednesday, in which Tom Hardy, the star, was there, um, as well as a few other um, local celebrities. I, I didn't go to that uh, in the crowds or anything, because I, I didn't find out about it until later. I wish I had, because I'd have gone up and done my uh, Bane impression, which I won't foist upon you now, but uh, some people have heard it, and it's apparently not too bad. Anyway, so I suppose I went into Locke with quite a bit of goodwill, as it happens anyway, because it features Birmingham. I like Stephen Knight as a as a writer and a director. He he cut his teeth on many things before. You know, he's written things like Eastern Promises and Dirty Pretty Things. But years ago, he did a great show called The Detectives, which was on British uh, television, um, starring one of Birmingham's greatest uh, exports, Jasper Carrot uh, and Robert Powell, which is a, a, a great underrated comedy show. So I've known about this guy for a while and. Uh, this is his second feature, I believe, his second directorial feature after Hummingbird, which I haven't seen. And Locke has a very, very interesting premise. The closest thing it's probably to is Buried a few years ago, in which Ryan Reynolds was underground in a coffin for the whole running time. And Locke is in a car, in a controlled, claustrophobic environment, and only features Tom Hardy. There is nobody else in the film, in terms of visually anyway it's just tom hardy in a car driving from birmingham to london in real time over the course of 85 90 minutes that's it that's that's the only setting and that is a massive challenge immediately you know how do you create a drama how do you create something compelling that is set in one tight space but stephen knight pretty much has done it and that's the biggest surprise about Locke. I, you know, I had a lot of uh, faith that Locke would, would manage to do this anyway. And even though it wasn't quite what I expected, certainly from the uh, almost hilariously intense trailer, which really tried to build up this idea of, of him having a bit of a, uh, a breakdown in the car. Uh, it doesn't really happen like that. Um, but it's, it's a very, very interesting kitchen sink psychodrama, Locke. And to really, to really go into too much detail about the story is to you, the detriment of enjoying it because you do kind of have to go into Locke quite coldly, I think, to really get a lot out of it. But essentially the setup is that Tom Hardy plays a guy called Ivan Locke, who's a Welshman, you know. So Tom Hardy uh, puts on a Welsh accent for most of this and it takes a bit of getting used to, like, you know, because Tom Hardy has this great London delivery, you know, to his to his accent and he's got this really really great voice and at first it's a little bit jarring to hear him break out into welsh you know 
But he does then start to slightly, slightly resemble Richard Burton a little bit uh, in his natural uh, voice, and that's no bad thing. And apparently, he, he read, uh, he, he listened quite a bit to um, Richard Burton um, doing Under Milk Wood to get the accent right, apparently. And you can kind of sense that. So once you get past that, you know, he, he plays this guy, he's a construction foreman uh, at a site in Birmingham. And he's a family man. He's got two kids, uh, two teenage boys. He's got a loving wife. He's got a, a really good job of some responsibility. And he's going on a journey somewhere that isn't home, that isn't work. And he's going to fix something that he's, he's made a mistake about. And to say any more would really, really ruin it. But that's the gist of it. Locke has made a mistake. And what he's doing is based on a principle that he's going to do the right thing in order to help sort this mistake out. And the interesting part of it is, is how that affects everyone, everyone around him. Stephen Knight uses the gambit of Locke being able to communicate with people through his car phone machine, which is you know a new uh, real technological leap over the last few years of cars that have inbuilt hands-free mobile systems. And that's something that a film wouldn't have been able to do 10 years ago. So it allows Locke to have the caveat of a man in a car talking on the phone and, we, and he comes through the speaker system. So we hear all these different voices. So we hear the voice of his wife. We hear the voice of his kids. We hear the voice of his co-workers. And we hear the voice of somebody else who, are, who I won't talk about for the purposes of plot. But all these people end up intertwining into this story of this everyman who, whose life begins to crumble around him through various different intertwining strands. And the whole idea of the story, really, is to shine a light on a man who is a decent, everyday man. And that's why it's something of a departure, in a way, for Tom Hardy, because Tom Hardy is getting a reputation for playing quite exotic, exuberant roles, you know. I mean, he's, arguably, he's best known for, the, for playing Bane in The Dark Knight Rises, and this couldn't be further from something like Bane. But it shows the range of the guy. You know, I'm a big fan of Tom Hardy. I think, I think he's genuinely going to end up being one of our best actors. He's already really good, but I think he will have a long-term career as one of our potential greats, actually, depending on how his career goes. And he, he does seem to be making quite canny choices between, you know, your blockbuster movies and your, your lower-budget indie films. And this certainly fits that bill. And he's working with a good script, you know. And one one of the great things about Locke is that it doesn't tip into melodrama. It could so easily have tipped into melodrama. It could so easily become really overwrought and silly and daft. And it could so easily have had Tom Hardy, who's quite an, could quite be an, quite an intense, you know, Tom's gruff guy. It could so easily have tipped him into being really falling down, Michael Douglas neurotic. But it never does. And that's that to some extent might sound like a criticism, but it's not because. Locke, what it lacks in that certain boiling up intensity, it gains in a realistic deconstruction of a, of a, of a flawed human being. And that's one of the reasons I liked it so much, because it, it manages to keep everything grounded in, with a story that, you know, it's not particularly cinematic. I mean, you know, Locke, the, the, perhaps the strength of Stephen Knight's script is that it could have worked. It certainly could have been on television and it could even work as a radio play. Because it's, 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 it's based on dialogue, it's based on conversations, it's based on reactions, it's based on Hardy's excellent central performance, which holds the screen all the way through. You know, he, he, our eyes are pretty much on him all the time. And 
not many actors would be able to pull that off, to be able to hold someone's interest for 90 minutes without anyone else involved and make it work. And he does. And he, he works from the script, which has a lot of drama, a lot of, you know, moments of comedy, which Knight has always been good at. And it manages to, if not be massively tense, it manages to be taught in a, in a, in a condensed way. And it leads you to a point at the end where you really think that one particular climactic moment is going to happen and it, it goes a different way. And, and in, in a good way. And it, 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 the payoff is, is quite satisfying even though it's open-ended and it doesn't wrap everything up in a neat bow. And it never, ever, ever goes over the top. It never loses its way. It never tran- transcends, <laughs> dare I use that word, into silliness. And Knight manages to keep it, the sense of momentum going, because it's always on the road. You know, this whole thing is him travelling this this distance. And whether or not he could actually get to Lon- from Birmingham to London in, in 85 minutes, even at you know, nine o'clock at night, is up for people who, you know, know cars better than me. I don't know. I've never done that journey. But the sense of momentum and forward momentum with the way he shoots, you know, he, he uses a lot of lighting effects from the road, which apparently were quite weren't 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 simulated you know it was literally they put several cameras on the car and they did a continuous take with with tom hardy driving down the motorway so that a lot of that was reflected as part of the actual scene without necessarily being staged but it works you get the feeling that we're always on the road and we're moving and and the destination is less important than the journey that locks on and it manages to weave his character into that journey and so visually it's surprisingly effective even if it's not very cinematic. Script, the script is good. The performance is excellent. The people whose voices we're here are also very, very good. And, it, it, you know, I challenge you to guess the voices. I guessed one correctly, a female voice, and I didn't get the rest right. I, uh, I did think that one Irish character, and it was Chris O'Dowd, and it's not Chris O'Dowd. Uh, <laughs> but it was... It was good luck. I, I, I was, I was pleasant. I was wasn't pleasantly surprised because I had a feeling it was good anyway. But I was pleased at how it didn't go over the top into melodrama, and it's a tight little film that isn't going to revolutionise anything. But it's it's a it's a good slice of drama and it's a good role for Tom Hardy, and I'm ju- I'm just very pleased, and it represents Birmingham in a in a even if it's not on screen very long, it just represents Birmingham in a better way than normal. So, Locke is definitely one to check out before it disappears from cinemas. So give it a go. I will do what needs to be done. So that brings us almost to the end of another Black Hole Cinema. But first, I'm going to unleash upon you my newest little idea to close out the episode, which is to run through the current UK top 10 at the cinema. Just to give you an idea of what's still hot and what's not, a lot of these will be things I've potentially reviewed, although some of them I may not have got to. It's just about working that out. But it's going to be interesting to see every week, I think, what's hitting the top of the charts and what isn't. So this is based of up to the 20th of April. The current figures aren't yet out, but this is based up until the 20th of April. So at number 10, there is Two States, which is one actually I haven't seen, as this is a Bollywood 
film, a Indian comedy, I believe. So proof again that Bollywood films do good business in UK cinemas. At number nine, we have Locke, which started with a fairly low intake, but Locke is never going to be a massive, massive, huge film anyway. But it's it's good that some people are at least going to see it, and because it is, as has been stated on this podcast, well worth checking out. Number eight, we have Muppets Most Wanted, which has done some good box office and has slowly begun to drip down the charts. I was half and half on Muppets Most Wanted. I liked certain elements of it. Others I thought were wanted. I didn't think it was as good as the last Muppets film. And I think that they could do better next time. But I'm glad people have gone and seen it because it does have some fun things. If only for Constantine, Kermit the Frog, you know, evil villain. So... Number seven, Calvary. Now, Calvary is, is one of the films I have desperately wanted to see, and I just haven't had time, because it's not on at, at Cineworld for a start, so it has to be sought out elsewhere. But it's, it's from what I've been told, it's a fantastic film. You know, a, a Marty McDonough film who did In Bruges and Seven Psychopaths. And in, I haven't seen Seven Psychopaths yet, but In Bruges was amazing. In Bruges is one of the best comedies of the last ten years. And it's got Brendan Gleeson in it from In Bruges, who's always good. And it's set around the Irish priesthood. And it's some, something I really, really want to see. So I'm, I'm glad Calvary seems to have done fairly well, um, or decently anyway, because it's supposed to be a brilliant film. Number six, Divergent. And Divergent has done a reasonable box office. I'm glad to see that it hasn't actually taken a massive amount over here, because it's not very good at all. And it's very bland, boring, teeny, sub-hunger games rubbish um although that, that's probably a bit unfair it's not rubbish it's just very very dull and leaden and it, it it's it's just something that probably isn't for my generation but there you go i didn't like it much and number five the love punch which done did fairly well to get to number five given the fact it's got two big hitters at the same weekend that were released so the love punch i haven't seen myself it's got uh, pierce brosnan and emma thompson and it seems like a bit of a comedy caper it looks quite fun actually so maybe i'll get to the love punch at some point but that's at number five number four captain america the winter soldier which is still hanging on in the top five after many weeks uh, after four weeks at the top and it's made quite a lot of money it's on the uh, 16 million so totally over it in the uk so it's it's done fairly good business and you know it's it's great it's it's probably the best marvel film since uh, the avengers and possibly the second best or third best Marvel film at all, actually. I really, really like Captain America The Winter Soldier. I thought it was very good, and I'm glad it's done well. Number three is Noah, which has done fairly good business. Noah's one I suspect may grow on me in time. I may get more out of Noah the longer time passes and the more maybe I see it. I just couldn't reconcile just how completely bonkers it was with how dumb it was at times, even though it's got it's a Darren Aronofsky behind it. It's got a lot of interesting visuals. It's... It potentially could be more in depth than it appears to be. I don't know with Noah. I was, I, I was very mixed bag to start with. It could grow on me, so I'm willing to give Noah the benefit of the doubt on a rewatch. But we'll see. Right now it's at three. Number two is Rio Two, which I haven't seen. It's uh, one for the kids. This it's obviously done quite very well. Um, I haven't seen the first Rio either. Maybe I'll get round to them at some point, but I'm not chomping at the bit. And at the top, inevitably, is the Amazing Spider-Man Two. Which isn't amazing, unfortunately. It's not bad. It's decent. It's got wonderful, wonderful two stars in Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone who managed to keep it going. They're fantastic. 
and it's got its heart in the right place, I guess. But it's just it lets Jamie Foxx down hugely. It's it's very mixed up. It's too long, and it's got a very very powerful ending that has the guts to do something that the comics did, and I'm glad it did it. But it, as a sum total, it's not a great movie. So that's at number one, and I suspect it might still be number one next week. But it's uh, it's going to do well, obviously, because it's Spider-Man. And it's good to see that Spider-Man's still doing well. I want these films to do well, because I want people to keep making them. But we, we still haven't had the definitive Spider-Man film for me. I'm disappointed, however. I've got to say I'm disappointed that The Raid doesn't seem to have made the top ten. It's in at number 14, and it's not done much money at all. And it's a shame, because The Raid 2 deserves a much wider audience. So it seems to have flopped a little bit, which is a bit of a shame. Still, we'll see how things are next week. Transcendence is doubtless going to make a bit of a dent at some point, as is The Other Woman. And dear God, you've got my review to look forward to for that next week, because I have seen The Other Woman, and I didn't have time to fit it in this week. But let's just say you're going to be in for a treat. Not the film. The film is about as much fun as syphilis, but you're going to be in for a treat with my review. Absolutely. So that brings an end to this one. As ever, you can find Black Hole Cinema on Twitter at Black Hole Cinema. We also now have a Facebook page, which so far a bunch of my wonderful friends have liked and and a a couple of other people. So please go on there. You can find it. Just type in Black Hole Cinema. It uh, will have all the information from the Twitter. If you're not one for Twitter, if you want more for Facebook, please go on there. Next week, you can, as I say, look forward to a review of The Other Woman (laughs) um, as well as a couple of other films possibly and there will be another guest on next week and yeah that's about it i'm aware as well that these podcasters ran roughly about an hour and a half so it could be that these podcasts start getting a bit longer so you'll have to let me know if you think they're too long or they're too baggy or anything please feedback you know twitter facebook please please let me know what you think and how i can improve the show as ever but please keep on listening it's wonderful that you are so many people are again thank you very much this is a hobby for me and it's one i'm enjoying so far so it's nice to know some people are actually tuning in so enjoy whatever films you watch i'm going back to work (laughs) but uh i'll still be getting some film watching in along that so have a good one guys see you next week hold up What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.